Welcome to Rock Album Analysts, your semi-weekly podcast where three lifelong friends, rock musicians, and rock fans take an in-depth look at a different rock album each week. This is your host, David Lucarelli. This is John Carson. This is Mike Gavity. And today we're going to be taking an in-depth look at GNR Lies. But uh, before we do that, we should apologize to anybody listening to this podcast that was expecting it to keep coming out on a weekly basis. Uh, the short answer is everybody's lives just got stupid busy all of a sudden at the same time. And we apologize for that. But uh, Mike, you actually got busy doing some pretty cool rock and roll stuff. So maybe you could, uh, could talk about what you've been up to. Yeah, a couple things have been happening. Uh, one of the bands I'm in, uh, called the Slandonistas, played a show recently at Maui Sugar Mill. It was the debut show of that band. Uh, they released a few singles digitally. Uh, They're going to release a full-length uh, LP CD later on this year. It was a successful show. Uh, good to get get that under our belt. Uh, Lauren Molinar from uh, Little Caesars in that band. Also, Boomer Behrman on drums. And Paul Ill, who's played with Warren Haynes and Bob Weir and all these other musicians that are way better than anybody I'll ever play with. A uh, great band. And then I went back home to Pittsburgh to play the Bobby Lamondi Life on Mars uh, tribute show uh, since Bobby passed away a few months ago due to COVID. Uh, me, and, me and Gary Martin from The Claws flew in and um, to, much to our surprise, I knew we were on the bill, but um, we basically closed the show. We were like the sort of like you know, the, the opposing act of the thing with this powerhouse of rhythm section. Uh, Rocky Lamondi on bass. Rocky played with Torn and Frayed. And, uh, I played with Forstal Boys now in Pittsburgh. Um, and, uh, Angelo Amantea from uh, you know, tons of bands. Uh, he's also in Royal Honey in Pittsburgh. And also Gary's friend uh, Eric uh, Roger on guitar. So this powerhouse like rhythm section, three guitar lineup in front. We played a couple of uh, science fiction idols tunes in tribute to Bobby, and we also played uh, the Bowie tune "Queen Bitch." It was nice. really emotional and, and a great set, and it was just killer to you know to play the, the Thunderbird Cafe in Pittsburgh, which is huge. That venue is like the size of the whiskey oh, nice. <laughs> in LA. It's a great venue. They just remodeled and reopened. It was a great night, great venue, great show, and uh, great celebration. And um, yeah, we're, we're lucky to be alive after that weekend. It was that was an emotional weekend. Okay, <laughs> but it, yeah. And then you had another friend of yours who was a musician that that passed away, and you sent me a documentary uh, that was also a live show uh, about him that I thought was really cool. And I think uh, people listening to this podcast might be interested. And I think John, you would be interested in because this guy, um, really interesting songwriter, very Dylan-esque in a lot of ways. And I know you're a big Bob Dylan fan. Um, so maybe you could yeah. uh, talk about, about that where people can see this documentary. Yeah, uh, look up uh, the Black Tongued Bells dot uh, com. You can see their their website. But that band was basically formed around uh, this guy D Minor, which you know, his name is not really D E E. It's D is in the fourth letter in the alphabet. <laughs> but again, if you're going to be a music, you should have a cool name like D Minor. Yeah, exactly. Minor, That's you know, right? a perfect name. Yeah, killer. Uh, but, uh, they were literally, you know, a lot of guys I know that play out here in Los Angeles. Uh, they were considered their favorite band in a way. They were really unique. 
Um, I think they were described as that the Rolling Stones came from you know, New Orleans. Yeah, <laughs> that would they be... have that real cool swamp boogie kind of feel. And uh... yeah, yeah, and, and great guy, great, great songwriter, great singer, sort of like a Tom Waits kind of voice, you know, with a lot of a lot of gravel, a lot of mileage, and and some really insightful mm. uh, lyrics and things to say. Yes, and in addition to you know, the lyric uh, stuff, he was also an interesting writer in terms of. Uh, I think I mentioned, you know, in previous podcasts, I think, or at least discussions with you guys, he sent me the, the CD and he said, basically, just learn the CD and, you know, we'll get together and rehearse and we'll work it out. So, you know, I'm used to like regular tunings, like standard tuning, open tunings, open DE. And I went through all these tunings and I couldn't figure out what he was doing. So I finally figured some stuff out on my own. I go to rehearsal and say, well, I probably should have told you, but uh, I play in an open D7 tuning. <laughs> okay, I, I, what <laughs> what is that right yeah, yeah right uh, yeah i'm still trying to figure that out but anyhow it wound up being a really cool situation because uh they really wanted to have another guitar player that could play a lot of slide parts so d could focus on singing and it was really you know one of the best bands that i've ever been in. anyhow d passed away recently um i've done a ton of shows with that guy over the years uh probably over the last eight years and uh, they're working on organizing a tribute uh, to D that's going to be taking place um, at a gallery uh, slash uh, museum in uh, Laguna Beach. Um, it was originally going to be on August 22nd, but they pushed it back due to the uh, you know the, the Delta variant, uh, so they're coming back. So that that'll be announced soon. But when that happens, that's going to be a cool thing. They're going to uh, film it, release DVDs. It'll be online. I'll let everybody know about that. Okay. Uh, but the real you know the real challenge and the real honor on my part is you know i think it's basically going to be you know the full band with the exception of d and maybe a dover player so i'm trying to scramble to figure out all these parts <laughs> and decide which part to play because there's a lot there's a lot of depth in, in his songwriting and his guitar playing it was a challenge but it was a fun challenge and, and uh it's gonna be a touching tribute to d and we're looking forward to that happening too so again you know the number of artists that i worked with over the years is astounding and uh it's just an honor just you know to be able to work with these people and you know when they leave us unfortunately to sort of carry on their legacy and pay tribute to them uh when they're no longer with us so lots going on um but you know good to be alive good to be working and uh again good to be back with you guys doing the podcast absolutely so without further ado we'll get into gnr lies uh so appetite for destruction comes out uh, it eventually lights the world on fire and there is a huge appetite for more music in this vein. Uh, I would even argue that Appetite essentially launches the careers of bands like Faster Pussycat and LA Guns. Not to say that those weren't good bands in their own right, but people were just so hungry to hear new music that sounded anything like this. Um, and this album, produced by Mike Klink, who also produced uh, Appetite, is really a combination of two albums. It's uh, Live Like a Suicide, which was the uh, 10,000 copy limited edition that supposedly came out on their own label, uh, Uzi records which actually turns out was a bit of kayfabe it was on <laughs> geffen records and 
It was supposedly live. Again, it wasn't. It was recorded maybe more or less live in the studio, but certainly not before a live audience. That's all overdubbed. Uh, funny how those guys never really get called out for that versus other artists that do, but all right. Um, Kiss, yeah. yeah. <laughs> right? Um, so the album kicks off with a song that actually had been around in some form or another since they were called Hollywood Rose, uh, Reckless Life. John, your thoughts? Uh, I liked it actually uh, quite a bit. I like the use. What do they rhyme reckless with? I forget. Uh, there's like a couple of neat rhymes in it. Uh, it's a barn burner. The whole side, Live Like a Suicide, is very, you know, super energetic. Um, really cool to listen to. Um, the, you know, it sounds like a live band. Actually, I'm kind of, I didn't know that. I didn't know that it was a faked live performance or whatever, because uh, it sounded actually totally reasonably live to me. Um, but all of these songs on this side, they don't particularly stand out to me because they're played like loud and, and fast and, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, but they all have that like super hyper energy thing working for them. So they all do really well for me. Yeah. Mike, what about you? Yeah. I mean, I dig it. I mean, I think, you know, production wise and sound quality, they, they could, you know, focus on it a little more so. It's a little dense and, you know, sometimes the, the vocals on, on this side sound kind of, uh, I don't know, the drums and the vocals seem to be kind of like recorded under a blanket or something. It, just, it doesn't really kind of cut through like it it's, should. It sounds like a board tape. I mean, that's why it sounds yeah, like yeah. a live tape. To me. Yeah. Even to the point where, you know, how if you're listening to a board tape, the first couple songs, they're, they're still <laughs> zeroing in on the mix. Right, yeah, and it yeah, it doesn't yeah, really yeah. start uh -huh. sounding balanced until you get to about the third song. I mm -hmm. say that that's kind of how this album sounds. Like the first couple songs are not the greatest mixes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But you know, cool point too from um, a packaging uh, point of view. There is also um, a, a G and an R side to this uh, vinyl, right. much like uh, Appetite, which is cool. Um, apparently, too, there were a, a few different uh, versions of the cover. You know, there were band versions of the cover with some of the narrative replaced and uh, the inside sleeve. I think the picture of um, you know the naked broad, you know, is, is either you know full nudity or you know obscured by a bar or whatever. Uh, but, but either way, I thought. From a musical standpoint, I found it interesting that there's a lot of uh, double bass in terms of the uh, the drumming on, on this first side of the record, which you don't really hear a whole ton of on Appetite. Right. You hear that more later on with you know, the Matt Sormary Guns N' Roses. Um, and also some things that you, you hear from you know, Slash in terms of the guitar show, which this brings up, a, a, well, I guess this would make sense because these songs were essentially, these live songs were recorded before they did Appetite, right? Yes. Okay, so hence with the guitar solo, you hear a lot of whammy bar stuff that Slash is doing. Mm. And I think prior to Appetite, he was playing guitars like Jackson guitars that have, you know, these split rows, tremolos, you can do dive bombs and, you know, kind of crazy whammy stuff like Hendrix would do. You hear quite a bit of that in the solo, which is not something you hear a whole lot of from Slash, you know, Appetite on, with the exception of maybe You Could Be Mine, you know, but we'll get to that in a future podcast. But some I just musically I thought it was cool. There's double bass stuff which you don't hear a lot of in early Guns N' Roses. A lot of whammy bar stuff you don't really hear in early Guns N' Roses. Um, and I, again, I, you know, Nazareth has been mentioned as you know sort of a component um, of influence on this band and some of the guys that work with the band. I think 
it has a Nazareth kind of feel to it as well. You know, it's a great riff. It's also an, an Aerosmithy type of riff as well. It, again, it's just super high energy from the get go. It, it, it's a cool track, you know. Yeah, yeah that's the yeah. Good. Sorry, Dave. No, no. I, I was just gonna say, you know, I um, I like the song. I, I the lyrics that are posted online as being what they're saying, I don't think are entirely accurate. I don't mm -hmm. think they've ever really published the lyrics, uh, official lyrics to this song. Uh, but there's yeah. there's some interesting stuff. I mean, the you know, I lead a reckless life, and you know, it's my only vice. That's, <laughs> yeah. that's the line. Yeah. yeah, I mean, that's such a weird line. Uh, at first when I heard it, but I was like, that's kind of clever. It almost sounds like a high school kid wrote that. You know what I mean? There's sort of, yeah. and that's part of the reason why I like this, uh, this side is it sounds like a band you've just accidentally fallen into seeing. Right. And you're like, oh, wow, this is a really good band. It's actually, but, yeah, it's very proto, very embryonic, primitive right, yeah. compared to the stuff that ends up on Appetite. Mm, but right. It has that energy. I, I was going to say too. I think the title "Live Like a Suicide." I, you wonder if that's a reference. There was this weird trend in like New York City art enclaves in the 1970s, where several performance artists said, "Like, I'm going to kill myself live." You know, this Saturday mm. night at seven o'clock. And I actually don't think any of them actually did it, but it was brilliant. Uh, publicity and a the way art. to pe make people question the nature of art and performance and all that. And, you know, I, I, I think that, that GNR is definitely a band that uh, has done that musically, uh, you know, throughout their career as well. Yeah, yeah. And, and for sure. Yeah, for sure, too. I mean, even just their live shows and we're talking about what is, you know, quote unquote, a live performance here. You know, you talk to anybody that saw them in the old days and you'll get a high positive and high negative. Some people say, you know, they were the greatest band I ever saw. And some guys say they were terrible. You know, they couldn't hold it together. I mean, it's, you know, it could have all fallen apart. It could have all been, you know, life or death on stage. You know, they could have fallen apart or, you know, held on. And probably both of those were accurate, depending on what show you saw and, and you know, how uh, messed up any certain members were at a, at a, at a given time. Yeah. So, yeah, um, I'd like to see them bring this back into the set list. Mm -hmm. I would, too. I would, too. And also, too, to your point, Dave, about the lyrics, I, I should check um, on the re-release of Appetite. There were several versions. There, the lyrics might be in the packaging of that re-release. OK. Not like 2018. I can be wrong. I'll look for it. I just know what I find online. Like there's lines like I imitate myself all of the time. I think he's saying I inundate myself all the time. There's things like that uh. where you know which in itself is a weird line but okay um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyhow now we move on to uh the first cover which is uh, nice boys a rose tattoo cover john yeah i i like that song along despite this uh, a lot despite the fact that i am a nice boy and i i do play rock and roll um <laughs> i like you know it, it had a great little catchy chorus to it and again i mean there's really not much to say to these songs they're very punky you know what i mean they're very yeah. sort of like immediate fast there's nothing that particularly stands out in solos but at the same time you are bopping along to it you are like yeah this is you know this is this totally rocks you know what i mean so again i got nothing that really stood out to me except for the whole you know catchy chorus and that kind of stuff but um you know again very raw very like in the moment again i i imagine this is like 
walking into a bar and seeing this band and being like, oh, wow, this band is actually pretty good. But then sometimes that weird, you know, that weird thing that happens that pretty much anything that's loud is good sometimes, you know, and, um, but they would have, they would have transcended, you know what I mean? I would have felt they transcended that, but yeah, I, I like the song. Um, and it, you know, it, but again, I just, it's really high energy and that's why I like it. Go ahead, Mike. Yeah, definitely. You know, it, yeah, the punk influence is there. Um, and if you didn't know any better, if you didn't know this was a cover tune, you would think that it was a Guns N' Roses song for several reasons. One is, you know, the riff is really similar to uh, It's So Easy from Appetite. Um, I think the, the lyric content is something that they would sing about normally. If you, you know, delve into it, it could be something that, you know, Guns would have written uh, lyrically. Um, there's, you know, cool slide guitar from Slash, which is, is bitching. Um, you know, at the same time, <laughs> it is that, that, feel where it sounds like it could it could fall apart at any moment oh totally <laughs> but right yeah, it, which is, it's yeah it's an out of control train and that's what makes it so yeah. fun to listen to which from the perspective of if this is just recorded in the studio is even more interesting because it'd be different if it was recorded in front of a live audience because you totally expect that from a live show because you know how do you capture an you know a performance in a live setting it's just about impossible we all know but this is recorded in the studio and it has that kind of fall apart at any you know moment kind of feel is it, it it's pretty cool in my opinion, you know, if, you know, which even contributes more to the, you know, the fact that this is a, you know, a live recording in, in a way, you know, you get the energy from a live show that you don't get from a, a studio recording. Yeah. Rose Tattoo is a really interesting band. Uh, they're Australian. And so like all Australian hard rock bands, they probably owe something to ACDC, but they also have kind of more of an interesting punk lyrical edge to some of their material. Um, ACDC was marketed as a punk band when they first appeared. Yeah, yeah. There's a great song that they do. Probably my favorite song by them is this a kind of pro-union anthem called We Can't Be Beaten. I don't know if you've ever mm-hmm. heard that song, but it's a it's a hell yeah. of a fist-pumping, head-banging tune. Um they do something in this song that has definitely been a big influence on the way that Guns N' Roses approaches songwriting, though, which is that the chorus and the verse are sort of only tangentially related to each other in terms of subject matter. Um, mm. Like the verses are all about this girl moving to the big city and becoming a strung out junkie and being abused and whatnot. And then the chorus is nice boys don't play rock and roll, which doesn't really have anything directly to do with that. But, you know, one could, I suppose, be somewhat a reflection on the other. Um, So anyhow, I I I took it as her being mixed up with the wrong person or looking for somebody for direction and then realizing they weren't a nice boy right because i'm not I, i'm not a nice boy i never was right in a way this whole album mm. is kind of has a, a, a lyrical conceptual theme in a way if you you know these people mm. moving to the big bad city and uh running into dangerous people and trying to survive and then that leads us into Move to the City. Again, another proto-punk type song, real raw. Again, nothing really stands out to me, but, you know, um, you know, a, a nice sort of allegory for themselves. You know what I mean? About, you know, they're escaping small town, that kind of stuff. Um, you know, I, uh, 
again, I, I like the high energy of it. I mean, there's again, it's so funny. There's nothing really that stands out about any of these songs. They sound even kind of muddy, but they have that level of energy that will make you. It's like listening to like a Ramones live album. I mean, literally, it's the mm -hmm. same thing over and over again, but you don't care because it's so, you know, um, so energetic. Mm -hmm. And so, you know what I mean? So, you know, and it, it, that's sort of how this plays for me. There's nothing that I'm not going to go back and be like, oh, yeah, that's the song I'm going to pick from this album to put on this playlist. You know, it's going to be something I listen to as a whole. So, Mike, your opinion. Well, it's funny. As we discuss this, uh, certain things come to mind here. Um, you wonder, if it was recorded in the studio, if the, if the intention was to make it sound kind of low-fi, like a board tape or something, you know? I mean, compare this to, like, Aerosmith Live Bootleg, you know, which was meant to be, like, you know, a board tape released on, you know, two sides of, or four sides of vinyl. You listen to, like, you know, the track toys uh, in the attic from that record it sounds like a board tape and it sounds terrible it's like it's like sped up a half half step you know there's firecrackers going off it's just a mess you know maybe that kind of lo-fi feel is something that was intentional here who knows um, did this come before or after appetite for destruction like well, like it was recorded before but it was recorded before so it was sort of them in the studio putting something down but then they went on to do Appetite for Destruction. Like, it, it's sort of weird that this would be something released. I mean, if you go with, I mean, the, go ahead, go ahead. Well, no, I was going to say, too, because I think, you know, the point being, this, this is recorded before Appetite, but then, you know, the side B or, you know, the R side, if you want to call it that, that was recorded after Appetite, right? Yes. Right, yeah. Okay. That's okay. my understanding, too. But there's sort of a weird level to this that makes me feel like, why was it recorded at all? You know what I mean? If it's recorded in a studio and not in a live setting, you know, I mean, you have, you have, yeah. um, what's the thing that came out with, uh, uh, Husker Du's first album is Land Speed Record, which is a live album. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And it, and so it sort of makes sense. Like this is, this is the only way we could capture ourselves from these board tapes from us live. You know what I mean? Um, yeah whatever so i'm sort of like well why would they even bother to record it if it's going to be in a studio um and then what studio or was it like we need to capture our live sound but we don't have the technology to record a show supposedly the the reason that they did it this way was it would have cost them more money to try to record themselves actually live and then it did okay. just yeah. to set up and record in the studio that's the explanation yeah, okay yeah okay all right i'll buy that and my point of even bringing up Aerosmith, period, um, really was the fact that this song reminds me of Aerosmith. It kind of reminds me of uh, the track One Way Street from the uh, de debut Aerosmith record. You know, it's got that kind of real cool bluesy feel. Um, if you isolate those guitar parts in the verse, if you just took one of those and, and made that the main part of the song, it wouldn't make any sense. If you put the two together, it's a symphony. It's great. It's, it's amazing the amount of guitar interplay that, that, is, that is there. Yeah, the thing about this track is I think this is the first track and maybe the only track of these four tracks where you really get that incredible guitar interplay between Slash and Izzy, that, that sputtering constant back and forth call and response thing that they're so amazing at uh, on Appetite. Yeah. And I, this is the first time you really hear it on this album. Um, and of course, the horns adds a whole other yeah. thing to it. Um, it's funny, I think it was either Mike 
Clink or Tom Zutout, who's been quoted in, in an interview fairly recently where he thought Reckless Life belonged on Appetite. If I had to pick one song from these songs that I think belongs on Appetite, it's Move to the City. Because I think it's really yeah. a pretty fully formed, functional song. Um, yeah. And they actually played this song live when I saw them open up for the Rolling Stones at... Um, wow. Where was that? Uh, in, USC? Uh, yeah, by USC. The Coliseum. The Coliseum. The Coliseum. Yeah. yeah. They played it live and it sounded great. You know, so again, this is a song I would like to hear them bring back into the set list because I think it uh, is kind of an overlooked classic in a way. You know, I mean, it's really pretty mature songwriting for these guys. Yeah. So that brings us to the second cover, uh, Aerosmith, Mama Kin. Yeah, uh, not a bad song. Don't mind it. Um, I don't like that they say, you know, this is a song about you, your mother and that kind of stuff. Um, I mean, it's perfectly serviceable. It's a nice update of the song because it's played a little bit faster, a little bit louder, a little bit rawer than what I'm used to from the... Uh, all I've ever heard is the vinyl version. I've never heard a live version of them doing it. Um, so, again, I like it. Um and it fits as a whole. On, well, actually, there were parts of it that I felt like it didn't fit because Aerosmith, to me, um, doesn't fit that sort of that punk sound that they were getting, that raw sound that they were getting. Aerosmith, to me, is always sort of a fairly produced band. And I know that my 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 understanding of Aerosmith is not probably as deep as yours or Mike's um, in terms of their sound. To me, Aerosmith has always been a very produced um band with not a lot of like raw edges i mean yeah they are rock but you know everything's sort of just about perfect with them uh whereas this album comes out as being very raw and you know almost falling apart so mike your thoughts on well you know, to john's point that's a great point because i mean pretty much every aerosmith record uh, that was released um with the exception of the first record which you know this song comes from is very produced in a way and very accurate and very crit. You know, it's it's. You can tell they 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 worked on the sounds. They worked in the arrangement, not the arrangement, like the sounds and the production. Whereas the first Aerosmith record, the production on it is. You know, it's different than the rest of their catalog. So, uh, but at the same time too, if you listen to the the original version that Aerosmith did, you know, it, it on on the first record, it's, it's pretty raw. You know, it works. Um, Okay. It, All right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Check it out because it, it had that kind of like edgy vibe, you know, and almost kind of like it, you know, fall apart in a minute you know, vibe again as well. Um, but you know, again, it's an accurate version of of the the, you know, the song they're covering here. But at the same time, too, they changed a little bit. I don't know if you noticed, but in the verse, uh, Izzy and Slash are swapping off the rhythm guitars. Mm. You go left and right. Oh, I didn't know that. Like, no, okay. The Aerosmith version, I think it's. Uh, I think Brad does the rhythm part, and then Joe comes in with you know the, the stuff where they kick in you know, with the rhythm section. But yeah, whereas Izzy and Slash are you know trading off the the, the verse rhythm guitar parts on this track, different than the Aerosmith version in that way. Right, and lyrically, I think it's it, it completely up the GNR alley of of the dichotomy of living uh, on one hand a completely reckless life, but being able to sustain that because you're also a mama's boy and certainly yeah. rock and roll is is full of uh you know that that kind of dichotomy where you know nobody talks about where they 
come from or their parents or whatever, and everybody wants to give the impression <laughs> that they were just raised by wolves. And yet at the end of the day, uh, you know, what allows people to live like that and keep them sane is very often uh, being grounded by uh, one or more of their their parents and, and checking in with them and, and uh, that being a sort of usually unspoken part of the rock and roll lifestyle. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And too, from a, a cover, a, a, you know, a cover song perspective, you know, this is one of those go-to songs. If you this song, anybody said, you know, the Aerosmith songs and somebody said, yeah, I know Mama Ken, you know, cause it's kind of easy to do. Yeah. You'd be like, say, can you play One Way Street? Whoa, whoa, hey, hold on. Can you play Dream On? Whoa, whoa, hold on a second. You know, this one, you can kind of just jam it out and it, and it works, you know. Nice. But it's it's adequate to the record. I dig it. So then we move on to the four new acoustic songs. Um, the first and only single from GNR Lies, mm -hmm. Patience. Uh, I found it to be smarmy crap. This is the point where I lose it for Guns N' Roses. This, uh, this second side of Lies is probably my jumping off point of never really liking Guns N' Roses again. I mean, I, and, and this is funny because this Guns N' Roses is the band that I missed the boat on um, because I didn't really care that much about them and they were you know they were always on the ra uh, radio i did own lies i think you gave it to me as like a christmas gift or a birthday gift uh dave so i, I did, did actually yeah <laughs> i listened to it but i um i just it just doesn't nothing holds up i mean the the whistling part is kind of neat and but it, it sounds i don't know man i just stopped it just it just doesn't do anything for me. I'm sure there's musically lots of interesting things going on in it, but it just never really stood out to me as a um, particularly good song written really by anybody. And I think even, but this could be colored by the rest of the album. You know, the other four songs, I think there's there's two songs in there that I just, even even at like 18 or 19, I was like, this is stupid. You know what I mean? And and so, I don't know, that may have covered, colored it, whereas, you know, that I can't appreciate the song for what it, what it is. But I don't like it. I don't like this side of Guns N' Roses at all. Um, you know, Mike, what did, what did you think? But, but it's weird because when I first listened to the album, I was like, oh, wow, I, I really did miss the boat on Guns N' Roses. You know what I mean? Listen to this great, you know, raw stuff here and then i flip it over and i'm like what is this crap so what's you what do you think mike uh i think because this was the first track that i was exposed to when this uh record came out i mean just the video alone is, is great i mean if you haven't seen that in a while it's really worth revisiting i mean just you got the there's all that crazy you know back and forth with like you know slash being in, you know in the bed in the hotel room and he's paying attention to his snakes and he's all these hot rods coming in and he doesn't care less about these hot rods he's playing with a snake and you know duff takes his own room service tray down to the you know the front desk because nobody's going to help him and you know, axel smashes that bitch and you know, light up telephone because he gets the phone call he didn't want to get and uh steven's looking you know just unattached to you know broads to the next one it, it's a really cool video but at the same time too when you have such a you know a great bluesy you know, punk, like, you know, electric live rock band playing, and then they released this single, it stood out to me. And I didn't understand it at the time, because, you know, I was also a fan of the Stones at the time, you know, songs like, you know, Dead Flowers and stuff, you know, interesting acoustic songs, and I'm not a big acoustic guitar fan at all, but when I heard this, 
it, it sort of captivated me in a way because there's a lot of interesting guitar playing on this track. And you've got basically three guys playing acoustic guitar. One of those is Duff, who basically playing you know bass licks on acoustic guitar. Um, there's a lot of everybody's doing something different. Again, it's that symphony of, of guitars. Everybody's you know working with each other, working around each other, and at least stepping on anybody's toes. Um, yeah, but sure, you know it could be construed as like maybe like you know, I mean this is the era of the power ballad, right? And this, but this I think there's this is better than that in my opinion. You know, there's a lot of depth to it. It kind of sounds like Crosby, Stills and Nash. It sounds like the Eagles. It sounds like you know early '70s Stones, mid '70s Stones. It, there's a lot going on here. Um, I, I you know. Just you know, try to learn like all the stuff that Slash is doing on guitar. There's a lot of major uh, scale, you know, country kind of playing. He's doing acoustic guitar and bending acoustic guitar strings. You ever try to bend an acoustic guitar string? It's impossible, but he's doing it. <laughs> it's, it's there's a lot to delve into. If you just put some headphones on and, and, and let yourself be immersed in it, you'll you hear a lot of cool stuff going on. And I think, you know, compared to the you know, other songs that might be considered as power ballads from this era, this this rises above, in my opinion. I, I, I dig it. You know, I, I, I dug it back then. I, I won't say I hated it later, but when they play it live, it would turn like a live jam and it goes on for about 10 minutes. But as a, as a track on, on the album, I think it's probably the strongest song of the record. I would agree with that. I, I like this song a lot. I, I think the fact that it's been covered by so many artists um, over time, too, is, is an indication that it, it has something special about it. Um, to me, I, I know what you're saying, John. It is a little cloying and cliche but the thing that really redeems the song is the whole outro where mm -hmm. you know it, it just takes the the entire song up a notch and you know the lines i've been walking these streets at night just trying to get it right it's hard to see with so many around you know i don't like being stuck in the ground and the streets don't change but maybe the names i ain't got time for the games because i need you um like I, I don't know something about that just always raises the hairs on the back of my head and i i think of uh the the street lights uh, of pittsburgh at night and those hot summer nights mm -hmm. and the moths flying around mm -hmm. and you know people just in relationships that they may not even be ready to be experiencing and doing the best that they can with what limited patience they have due to their lack of experience and and you know something about that rings true to me all right i'll, I'll buy yeah. that i just yeah. I, oh, wow <laughs> okay well, so I got yeah and, and me too uh, david also with i think this song kind of shows a, a maturity that they had you know that might be underappreciated in a way you know, this is a very you know mature musically song in a way and that that outro is killer it's so dramatic it's a great chord change um you know and speaking of you know pittsburgh and being you know there and just kind of dealing with stuff i mean i remember uh, we, Dave, you and I were going to play a show at the Foggy Bottom, which I think was in West Midland somewhere, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, we decided, well, you know, the band that I was in, we're like, we need to get there early and pull in the, you know, the truck and get ready and load in at like, you know, four o'clock in the afternoon. Well, we got there. They didn't open the doors to the venue until like seven o'clock. So we were there for hours <laughs> waiting to get in. So we had the radio on and this song came on. It was this great moment where you know, I was sitting there with my band and we just kind of sat there in silence and said, you know what? This song is really good. It's a good song. You know, it was it was a real, real cool moment. And then, you know, of course, you know, we both of our bands got on stage and we rocked, and it was a great night. But uh, yeah, I mean, just again, not to get on the guitar thing, but there's so much great guitar playing in this thing. There's so much like Joe Walsh, like chromatic, you know, country riffs. There's the double stop kind of Jimmy Page stuff, you know, like in Heartbreaker. 
Um, but I, I have a musical question for, for, you know, for you guys. When they go to the E chord in that in the chorus, mm. da da da. Isn't it? Isn't it E major? Is it E minor? It does. It, it, there's certain points where it sounds like one guy's playing E minor and some guy's playing E major. Hmm. It's a, check it out when you get a chance. I'd have to listen to it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Da, da, da. Yeah. All, right before all we need is this little patience. When they go to that E chord, sometimes someone's playing E major, someone's playing E minor. Something's not right there. Okay. You know. So this is my unprofessional, you know, very humble opinion. So if you're hearing it, I'm sure it's there. Okay. So moving on to use to love her. Okay, so I hate this song. Um, like, hate it, hate it, hate it, because I, rem- I was like, who's going to write a song about killing their girlfriend, wife, whatever? I mean, there's a strong tradition of songs about killing loved ones. You know, there's murder ballads and, you know, that kind of stuff. And, um, and at the time, I was starting to hear, you know, because I was, you know, starting to hear, like, lots of sort of darker songs and things like that. And this just seemed like so like, contrived. Um, I mean, I compare it to sort of like, hey, Joe, um, which mm. is, you know, that that guy is suffering. You know what I mean? That, you know, that mm. he has had to kill his wife and and you go to various murder ballads and those people are suffering because of the death that, or the murder that they've um, had to commit. And then this is just a joke song about killing your nagging wife, you know, whatever fuck you you know what i mean i really just i really really hate this song like i hated it when i heard it when i was a kid i hated it again when i was you know listening to it just recently it's it's i uh hate it so mike tell me why what i'm missing uh well i when when i first got the record i thought what is dark subject matter here you know you know had to now she's buried in my backyard well that was until i researched recently apparently it's written about axel's dog right it's not really about yes, a... supposedly, although Izzy wrote it, but they claim okay, that it I'm is sorry. written about Axel's dog that he buried in the backyard. If you if you look <laughs> at the lyrics, it's all written so that it can be interpreted as him singing about his dog or a woman, you mm. know, and, you know, it's it's very kind of a long way to go for what is a joke that is maybe not that funny to begin with but i i guess i call shenanigans you you place it in the category of it's hokum right it's really what it is and there's a there's a, a huge long tradition of hokum where you have songs that seem to be saying one thing and and are dark and edgy and can be purposefully vague enough to be interpreted to be saying something completely different this is one of those, um, it's a fun three chord kind of bar song. You can play it easily in a jam, but you know, whether or not there's a, a kind of dark misogyny at work here and it's a long way to go for that joke. Yeah. 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 Sometimes you can try too hard in that regard. And two, it's also very reminiscent of uh, Rolling Stone's Dead Flowers. You know, like we've heard these chord changes before, no, you know, no, no question there, but on the, the lyric thing, I think in the last chorus, uh, there's one little ad lib that Axel does. This is maybe on the, you know, you get the joke or the joke's on you. He says, take it for what it is. Right. Yeah, which is, you know, he's obviously aware of the fact that, you know, he's kind of approaching the song that way and you can take it 
either way, you know. Right, which is a completely disingenuous whatever. thing to say yeah. because, yeah, you know, it's purposely written so that you will misinterpret it if you don't yeah. know what it's supposed to be about. So to say, take it for what it is, is kind of meaningless, but okay. Yeah. Right, and, and makes it even seem cheaper in terms of like murdering someone. You know what I mean? I mean, I know they're not murderers, but still, it's just whatever. It's just cheesy. Yeah. yeah. They're, they're trying to look too hard. Yeah. Obviously. All right. So then we have your crazy, the acoustic version. And I like this better than the version on um, <laughs> than Appetite for Destruction. Aren't there like congas added in here and stuff like that? I mean, it's really kind of interesting to listen to. I, I actually kind of dug it. I like the way it's reinterpreted. Um, you can sort of hear the parts a little bit better and it's, it stands out. This is the only song on this side that I actually kind of like lyrically, I still can't stand it, but um, you know, it's kind of interesting musically to me. Good, Mike. What do you think? Uh, yeah, I agree with you, John. This, uh, this I like this version. You know, in, in this one, to me, it's it's a it's an interesting laid back version of a chaotic song. You know, from from, from Appetite. Like when you listen to an Appetite, it's, uh, there's almost you can't even comprehend it. It's going it's flowing by you at, at a pace. You know. Um, you, you can actually listen to the parts and hear the parts in, in right. this version, and, and it works better in that regard. You know, is the version on Appetite better or, or bad or whatever? It, you know, it's not really the point here, but at least when you listen to this version, you can hear the parts and you can appreciate it more so. It, um, maybe it's better in, in that regard, in a way, you know. Yeah, I, you know, again, at the risk of repeating what I said about this song on the Appetite podcast, mm -hmm. I actually think it's a clever song because it is Axel chastising a young woman for not being interested in a real relationship, but just mindless hedonistic sexual self-indulgence and saying that she's crazy for looking at life like that. And the reason why he knows that is because when he was her age, she he looked at life like that as well and somebody older tried to tell him you're wasting your time living life like this and he wasn't ready to hear it and they said well then you're just crazy and i can't help you and and so i think that the, the song is um a, a very kind of worthy and 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 subtle song lyrically when when you look at it um interesting when we saw them open for aerosmith this was before gnr lies came out they opened yeah. playing this song electrically, but at the tempo that it's played on GNR Lies, and everybody was just <laughs> taken aback, like, what in the name of God are they doing? Um, but it was great. It, it, you know, it was, yeah. it was such a shock uh, to, to open a concert that way. And, yeah. and supposedly this was the original tempo of the song, and then they sped it up for mm. Appetite. So they wanted to, you know, put this on record being at this tempo. I think it works well at either tempo. Um, okay. And again, I need to uh, you know, praise you, Dave, for your perspective on you know, the, the lyrics in the song, because now I, I can't hear it in any other way than your perception of it. It's great. I, I have a whole new appreciation for the lyrics in the song, and uh, your perspective is awesome. So thank you. Well, speaking of lyrics to songs, <laughs> we have the most controversial song on this album, One in a Million. Okay, so taken as he's playing a character, which he is, I think he's come right out and said, this, these are people that I've had problems with. There's something like that to the point where he just basically admits that he is singing the song about himself. 
but he has also stated that he is apparently playing a character in the song, which is, we all know what, you know, um, it's what makes listening to Merciful Fate so fun. You know, we're not actually worshiping Satan, but it's fun to think about maybe <laughs> worshiping Satan. So the issue I have is that he would go through how many gatekeepers before these, someone would, wouldn't say, hey, maybe you want to tone that down. Or if you're going to base it on a character, why not give it some sort of lesson or moral at the end? instead of, you know, almost celebrating this character. Um, you know what I mean? It just, it's such a crap. I, I just can't believe someone didn't stop him from doing this. Because this song literally ruins Guns N' Roses for me completely. Like, how could you ever take anything Guns N' Roses take seriously or Axel? after this song that the fact that nobody with with acts with with slash himself being biracial that no one mm. would actually stop and say mm. hey wait a minute maybe you don't want to you know what i mean like maybe you don't want to uh, offend you know certain people that listen to this song and i mean i i know most people don't listen to lyrics and things like things like that but i mean it just it literally is the death knell for guns and roses for me um, now I'm going to listen, you know, because I never listened to use your illusion except for the stuff they played on the radio. So I've heard November rain and that, and whatever the Paul McCartney cover is, but I, that's it. That's all I've ever listened to again of guns and roses because they were after that song came out and I used to love her, but I had to kill her. Like they were just ass out. I mean, I was just like, I'm done with them. These are, how is, how are people allowing these people to say stuff and how is he not even self-reflective enough to realize that maybe he needs to pull a critique on himself. Um, you know what I mean? Like that, that's what I just don't understand. So this is the death knell for guns and roses for me. This is where I stopped really even giving them any more chances. Um, but you know, I mean, I don't know that it's just a terrible song. It's just a really, I mean, I even re even recognized that at like 18, I was like, he can't say this, you know, how could you say this? You know, so it's just, I don't know, but go ahead, Mike, tell me what I'm missing from the song. What, what it's, what makes it a good song or is anything there? Well, this is, this hopefully will make you laugh. Um, when they get to that section where, you know, you're much too high and those chord changes are kind of like, you know, rip it out, you know, it's fairly, um, uh -huh. if, you, if you guys ever seen the movie Light of Day with uh, Joan Jett and Michael J. Fox. Yes. Okay. Well, you know, um, Dave, it, you have, it's really not worth watching, but anyhow, that, that musical section is absolutely like a song in that movie is called it's all coming down to it it's the same chord structure it's the same melody <laughs> it came in 1987 you know, maybe was, yeah <laughs> huh. i'm joking of course but yeah i mean you would actually write a song like this today you know would you know somebody make a movie you know like you know that was done in the past you know today no probably you know uh but it, it definitely seems so like such an like, in, in immature perspective, not just in, in terms of you know, the lyric content, but just like the, the approach, like you can't come up with a better story and use you know, different words to tell that same story. But then my question, but what I want to get to too is the chorus, like what really is the relevance of, you know, your one in a million compared to what the storytelling you know, vibe is in the verse? Is there really a connection there? I, I, I don't see it. 
Well, he's talking about the person. If you take it from the point of view that it's a character, he's talking about it from mm. the point of view that everybody can make it, even this small podunk mm. town, whatever. And he will eventually will see your name in lights or whatever. But um, and then he doesn't he talk about the. But does he ever talk about the person falling? You know what I mean? Like mm. th- there's just no moral to the song. There's no turnaround that says, you know, I mean, even. Um, at the end of Jukebox Hero, doesn't it talk about him dying of a drug overdose or something? Like, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Or is, is that the other song? What's the, um, I don't know. There's some bad yeah. company song. Is it you? Yeah, whatever. Sorry, you know that, what yeah, shoot, that's a shooting star. Yeah, not Jukebox yeah, Hero. Yeah, sorry, yeah. sorry. Yeah, shooting star. Um, the, they, they have a moral to the story. You know what I mean? Mm. They have a, a, a reason, a turnaround in the song that says, you know, Paranoid ends with, I tell you to enjoy life because for me it's too late. You know what I mean? There's a, there's a, there's a something there. Dave, you look yeah. like you got something to say. Say it. Come on. All right. Go. I'm going to argue in defense of this song that there actually is that turnaround. And maybe it's hmm. not so obvious, but let's go through this song. First, I just want to say uh, I remember Guns N' Roses' manager at the time. Uh, was asked about this song when I saw him giving a speech at the Concrete Foundations Forum. And he said, you know, I understand people's um, umbrage at the use of these words and why they think that uh, the song lyrics taken out of context can be seen as racist or homophobic or xenophobic. He said, but Axl Rose is not a gratuitous artist. He is an artist that uh, deserves the freedom to use all of the colors on the palette to paint the picture that he is trying to paint. And I think what he is trying to talk about on in this song is his incredibly limited perspective of being a young uh, not seasoned, not exposed to people of different races or backgrounds or sexual orientations, and then coming to the the big mean city and the shock and rude awakening that he felt uh, when overnight he was plunged into a world where one couldn't help but be exposed uh, in sometimes very rough ways. Um, I, I do think that the turnaround is is really when he says, it's been such a long time since I knew right from wrong. It's all a means to an end. I keep it moving along. So to me, that is him admitting that the perspective that he had then is not what he's trying to say one's attitude towards life should be uh, and that those attitudes themselves are not okay. Because then he goes on to say, radicals and racists don't point your finger at me, right? Right, uh, yeah. Uh-huh. So, so you know, he doesn't want to but what's be- the line? what's the line after that? Radicals and racists- I'm just a small town white town boy po- just right. trying to make ends meet. Don't need your religion. Don't watch that much TV. Just making my living, baby. That's enough for me. 
Right. And that's where the, that even if there was a vague turnaround in the line before, like you said, that's where it turns uh, accurate again to, for me. But because I tried to I tried to do the same thing, Dave. I tried to find the turnaround in the song that made it like he was giving, you know what I mean, something to it. And that when he goes into that, don't you know, I don't I don't need your religion. Don't you know that kind of stuff. Well, it's kind of it's kind of awkwardly stated, right? Because radicals and racists wouldn't be pointing their fingers at him. They It would be more like, you know, the line should have probably been radicals and racists don't think I'm one of you or something mm-hmm. like that, would, which would have made it clearer. Uh, um, mm-hmm. But I think that's what he's trying to say. I mean, you know, he is a small town white boy who came, you know, out to the big city and had his perspectives radically shifted. And, you know, yeah. now that's that's it. I mean, you know, I, I take your point, Mike, about the fact that the, the verse is only tangentially related to the chorus. The chorus, they seem to be talking about, again, a woman who was messing up her life with hard drugs and they tried to reach mm-hmm. her, but she's much too high. And uh, that totally reminds me of, mm-hmm. you know, just from real life experience, um, after Steven Adler moved out oh. of Jeff's apartment, a, a, a young actress slash model who shall remain nameless but was had a relatively minor but speaking role on Baywatch moved in you know and she was one of these kind of effervescent glowing beauties who just managed to destroy her life through hard drug abuse and her power was turned off and there was like a line of guys outside her place at all times Mm. and it was just so heartbreaking and sad to see because she had the world by the balls and she had all of this potential and Mm. opportunity and just kind of squandered it and threw it away and destroyed herself and so Mm. you know i think that's what the chorus is talking about here that kind of thing okay yeah i think you know i don't know i mean Lyric content aside, I you know just even looking at the Guns N' Roses documentary that came out uh, around this time on MTV. I mean, you know, Axel kind of tries to justify his approach to the song and saying, you know, when you get to the thing, you know, radicals and racists don't put your finger at me. I, you know, is he trying to just defend the, the defend the fact that he made a point and and he's trying to you know had that be like you know, the stopgap, like you know I, I said it and don't blame me for saying it, but I, I just happen to say it. You know, but at the same time, at the end of the interview, he also says like you know that song. I think he says something like. You know, that song's going to haunt me to the, to the end of my life. You know, I think he's really just trying to tell a story. Could he have done it in, in a more mature way? Probably. But would it be as effective? Debatable, you know? I mean, right. it's cinema. Well, you know, it's so cinema. The, moral, the moral of the story is, is make a second pass at it. Do a, do a revision. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, that's just bounce it off someone else before you spit it out like that. You know what I mean? That's, that's my only thing about that song is if there is the turnaround that we keep hoping there is you know then sit down with brian adams and say hey let's make sure there's a turnaround in here you know what i mean the turnaround could have been written better could have made it more clear i i agree with you i think this is a song that none of us would have written because none of us have gone through periods of our life where we were racist or homophobic or xenophobic but then again we weren't raised in some podunk small town in indiana 
Mm -hmm. Right. True. Yeah. Right. The great metropolis of Pittsburgh. Yeah. (laughs) The the Paris, the Paris of Appalachia. Exactly. Um, yeah. Some of us survived Reisenstein, right? So that's right. right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, Just barely. Yeah. <laughs> Anyhow, uh, final final thoughts and words about GNR Lies. What do you guys have any memories associated with getting this one? Because I sure do. I got it from you. You gave it to me as a gift. You loved it. And I, I loved that first side. I thought that first side was great. And then the second side, I was like, what is this? So but I never told you because it would have been bad because you gave it to me as a present. (laughs) (laughs) What about you, Mike? Uh, I bought it again on on Dave's recommendation as always, and he's always right. Um, Thank you, Dave. Um, Also, you know, the video for Patience is killer. It's well done. Check it out again. That's the strongest song in the record. Um, You know, it's, it's cool. I mean, it's, it's worth, you know, revisiting it. It's a short record. You know, it's an easy listen in a way in terms of, you know, in terms of commitment, give it like 30 or so minutes and you're in and out. Um, you know, it's, it's cool. 33 I mean, minutes and a third long, right? You think that's a coincidence? Ah, <laughs> nice. Yeah. They took the, the, the verse, which had the turnaround in for uh, one in a million, and they cut it so they could get the 33. So and a they third. could be meta. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and uh, the last thing I'll say is I'm inspired too because what I, I have what I thought was the original cover, but it's not the original cover. Um, there's different narrative on the cover, the insert is different. So I'm about to spend some money here. I'm going to find uh, the original cover somewhere online and uh, throw some money at it and, and get one. But uh, cool, cool record. You know, it's different. You know, it's you have like the live side, kind of the punk vibe. You have the acoustic side, and you know, I mean, people have released worse. You know, so this is my memory. I was in high school, and the album came out on. Uh... Um, a weekday, whatever it was. And so Tuesday, Tuesday, yeah, 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 new record Tuesday, comic book Wednesdays, magazines Thursday, movies Friday. Okay. So James Thurman and I cut school in the middle of the day to go to the record shop and pick this up. And then we went back to his place and listened to the whole thing before we went back to school because we were that into GNR. We had to hear it the moment, the day that it came out. So if nothing else, it's a great memory. And uh, I'm still friends with James on Facebook today. So good to see you, James. Yeah, Um, I guess that's all we got to say about GNR Lies. Next week, we'll be back with what, what should we do? The orange, use your illusion? One. Is one, one, one is yeah. orange, right? Yeah. Okay. Yes. So we're doing blue use your, we're using use your illusion one. All right. Yes. Okay. <laughs> two, yeah. Then, yeah. Blue, yeah. Orange is one, blue is two. So. Okay. We will see you soon. Mm-hmm.